science. You will be challenged. You will question everything you thought you believed. Prepare to be. been so long since we've done an episode i i feel like i've forgotten how to do it i don't remember your name who are you <laughs> who am and i now <laughs> an important <laughs> question we're supposed to like talk about stuff on here aren't we yeah what is talking <laughs> yeah it's it's been like what two weeks since we've more than that Oh yeah, it has. I've I've been working like six days a week, and I'm I've been exhausted. But um, I'm here. I made it home in time to podcast. So JJ, you brought on a guest today. Do you want to introduce our guest for the show? Oh man, I'd love to. Uh, joining us today is a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Garrett Merriam, and he is a uh, professor of uh, philosophy, doctor professor of philosophy at it. Uh, as university, as State University of California. Can you uh, clarify that for me? California State University, Sacramento. Thank you. Thank you for the, uh, the correction. <laughs> I um, hear it. <laughs> yeah, Garrett, uh, I have a lot. Like, I've listened to several of Garrett's lectures that he's made available on YouTube on his channel, Sisyphus Redeemed, all one word. That's a brilliant name. I still love it. And, uh, I you know, reached out to him and we made a connection on social media and we've, we've kept in touch. You know, we're friends on the Facebooks and all that cool stuff. And um, I wanted to get Garrett to come on originally to talk about panpsychism. And I think we might get to that or we might save it for another show. We'll just see how things progress. But I was more interested because on occasion, like Thomas and I have had guests that have talked about, you know, the flat earth and COVID <sighs> conspiracies. And we've we've dabbled our toe into, you know, since I've come on talking about just specifically like philosophical topics like philosophy of mind. We had mm -hmm. um, uh, been... Uh, oh, Watkins. Ben Watkins from Real Atheology come on to talk about compatibilism and the problems with my incompatibilist position. And I've spent, I went and I've completed listening to uh, Daniel Dennett's book, uh, Elbow Room, and I'm halfway through Freedom Evolves because of that conversation, trying to understand this philosophical point more. And it occurred to me, Maybe it would be good to talk about why people like me, just because I am not a, a like a, a practicing specialist in philosophy. I don't have a doctorate. I've never taken. I've taken one intro to philosophy class 13 years ago. Um, no, it's more than that. It might have been 17 years ago. Man, I'm old. And uh, but so I consider myself years ago. A, <laughs> I consider myself a layman, but I still think that it's important to try to understand why we should think about thinking and all of the different facets that go into trying to understand our world and ourselves and our reality. So I, yeah. I asked Garrett if he'd come on and, and talk about that with us. 
as I mean, as a layperson, I love this. Um, I am a philosophy fan, but I am by no means any kind of uh, an expert in philosophy. I, I'm very much a layperson, but for what little I've learned, it's made a very big impact on the way I view a lot of things. So I'm actually really excited about this. Well, guys, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me and having me on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. So you were like, I'd never cracked open an actual philosophy book until you had pe- recommended the story about Sylvan's box to me, uh, Garrett. Mm. That, that you're diving into the deep end with that one. <laughs> you know, and that's what I just quickly just because I went on and I bought uh, one, you know, his Grand Priest book about the ideas of metaphysics of oneness and the myriology that is involved in that. And that was way out of my league. So perhaps you know, that, so we should explain for for, for the uninitiated. Uh, uh, yes, Sylvan's yes. Box is a short story, uh, 1997 short story written by the philosopher Graham Priest. If you Google it, you can you can find it. It's free freely available online. And what it attempts to do is present a narrative in which a logical contradiction takes place. But in spite of the fact that there is a logical contradiction going on, the narrative still makes sense and you're still able to follow it. Uh, and Priest uses this short story to illustrate uh, the principle that uh, uh, um, oftentimes our intuitions about uh, what logic means and how logic works don't necessarily match up or translate across all possible ways of thinking about things. Uh, he rather famously argues for a position called dialetheism in which uh, certain logical contradictions can nonetheless be true. So if that doesn't sort of bend back your brain, uh, then maybe we can start with something a little bit more low gear. Not everyone has to start off as high end as JJ did. <laughs> it, it was like it was like sitting down at the piano and being taught the scale and then trying to play some Rachmaninoff right off the bat. And it was really hard. It was nice to step down to reading Dan Dennett's work on compatibilism because <laughs> it was a lot more digestible. Yeah, he does have pretty approachable stuff. I don't know and if it, I... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it just does go to show that oftentimes one of the problems that lay people have with philosophy is that philosophers often don't write for lay people. They often write for each other. And when they do that, in any situation where experts are talking among experts, they often start writing in ways uh, that are not really approachable. Um, and certain people like Dan Dennett specifically go out of their way to try to make their ideas more approachable. And so a standard piece of advice for people who are interested in philosophy is to make sure that you're not uh, just tuning into the the hyper-technical stuff because you will likely be alienated. It's not that you're not intelligent enough to understand it. You just don't quite get the vocabulary because you're not initiated. Uh, but there are plenty of examples of good philosophers and philosophical writers out there who are deliberately trying to make sure that what they're putting out into the world can be accessed and understood by people without any specialized training. So like... So, oh, go ahead, Thomas. Oh, no, I was just going to ask, like, you know, as just kind of your average Joe, um, how do I go about, you know, kind of dipping my toes into the world of philosophy? I think that's, uh, you know, I'm not really sure. I mean, one of the big 
topics that comes up in this field actually is what exactly do we mean by average Joe? Um, <laughs> uh, what is a lay person precisely? Um, in, in sort of the least controversial sense, obviously, it's just anyone who doesn't have any specialized training in philosophy. But right. lots of people might have specialized training in other areas that are philosophy adjacent. So if someone has like a PhD in a science field, for example, they may actually have been exposed to quite a lot of philosophy without necessarily experiencing it as philosophy as such. Um, so it's kind of hard to give a catch-all answer to the question, what should a lay person do to get interested in philosophy? What should your average Joe do to get interested in philosophy? Uh, because you know, it's not really sure, clear what it means to be an average person in that context. But that having been said, one of, I think, the easiest ways in which a lot of people get interested in philosophy actually is through works of fiction. Um, in particular, I think actually science fiction is often very philosophically robust. Yeah. Um, there, there are many philosophical writers uh, who, who explore, um, oftentimes explicitly, sometimes uh, indirectly, uh, a variety of philosophical conundrums. Um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is, is, is an example. Um, more uh, recently, um, uh, Ted Chiang uh, is a science fiction writer who's written a lot of uh, scientific short stories that philosophers just go head over heels for because he does a, an excellent job of exploring complex philosophical questions um, in the context of a narrative. Uh, if that name seems familiar, Ch Ted Chiang was the, the author of the short story, which is adapted to the movie Arrival, um, about the aliens showing up and their, their complex language uh, yeah, attempts yeah. at communication. Um, so uh, uh, one of the ways in which I try to get a lot of my students interested into uh, 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 philosophy is by letting them know that they've probably actually already been exposed to quite a lot of it just through the popular culture. Um, mm -hmm. There's a, a number of books on philosophy and popular culture that specifically take famous properties like The Lord of the Rings or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, or Stephen King and try to write sort of philosophical explorations of, you know, oftentimes classic topics that you as you find them in these works of popular culture. Um, so odds are, even if you haven't explicitly made an attempt to learn about philosophy, you probably have encountered philosophical problems and you just have to sort of you know, have it pointed out that, oh yeah, in this short story or in this movie or in this video game or whatever, there's all sorts of interesting philosophical problems and you just need to have your, your thoughts nudged in the direction to start thinking about them as philosophical problems. Right. So you, you've, you've kind of laid on you know this idea that implicitly generally most people are exposed to philosophy in, it's something many, that many is, ways. yeah it's it's very much permeates our culture um uh you know philosophers as far back as plato and aristotle have actually said that human beings are just hardwired to do philosophy uh, we are curious by nature um and especially when we were children we just have a natural philosophical appetite and you know sometimes our society can sort of beat that appetite out of us and sometimes it can en enhance it but uh it's usually there to to a greater or lesser degree in pretty much everyone's mind in some capacity. So uh, you mentioned children having an innate curiosity for it. What do you think, how much and what types of philosophical ideas should we make more explicit as as people? Like are the things that we should be teaching kids that aren't part of our typical uh, Western curriculum? I mean – Definitely, yes. Uh, there's there's a wide variety of uh, things that, you know, if you were to put me in charge of writing a universal curriculum uh, for, for K through 12, uh, that I would uh, that I would 
changes that I would make in order to do that. But pinpointing specific ones, again, because that's kind of a broad question, uh, can be a bit challenging. Um, sure. But if we want to uh, if we can sort of narrow it down a little bit, uh, you know, there, there have been several people who have specifically written books about uh, philosophy for children. Um, and one of the things which uh, I think is interesting to talk to, to, to kids about, especially very young kids, um, is imaginary friends. Um, you know, a lot of children at some stage in their development have imaginary friends and it's considered normal and it's considered healthy, but also at a certain point in their development, they often will sort of tip over and, and move away from imaginary friends. And if you can catch a child right around that tipping point, you can have some really fascinating conversations with them about, you know, what philosophers would call the ontology of imaginary friends. You probably wouldn't want to use that word with kids because they wouldn't know what it means. But, um, you, you know, you can explore what in what sense these imaginary friends exist. Because in one sense, of course, they are very real to children. Children will have conversations with them. They will interact with them. Uh, their, their imaginary friend will have a personality and preferences. Um, but of course, we as adults understand that you know, it, by the very nature of the word imaginary, that these things aren't really real, right? They, they exist in a sense, but only in an abstracted sense. They are Figments of, of of the child's imagination, um, so that's a conversation which you know I think that, uh, sometimes people stumble upon. Uh, but if you have a you know a, a certain sort of philosophical or at least generally intellectual toolkit ready to have that conversation with your child, or maybe if, if you are a teacher with, with with students in your class or whatever, uh, that can be a, a deeply philosophically rewarding conversation to have. So, so you use the word ontology. And it might be nice to for the to unpack that just like a brief you know elevator pitch for the listeners. Like, Ontology uh, is is typically considered to be a, 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 a sub branch of what's known as metaphysics. Uh, you know, metaphysics is asking questions about existence in the broadest sense. Uh, what uh, what is real? What is not real? What does it mean to say something exists? Um, how do we understand the existence of uh, abstract objects like numbers or concepts. Um, and ontology is more specifically has to deal with things. Uh, what does it mean for, to, to be a thing, you know, as, as, as distinct from, say, a relationship or a force or something like that? Um, so, uh, um, how do we, should we think of the number two, for example, as a thing? in and of itself, distinct from uh, physical objects, or should we instead think of it as a relationship or a concept that exists either in our in our minds or or, or uh, somehow between physical objects? Um, that's a, a sort of very classical ontological debate in philosophy. You know, that, that harkens back. I've seen on Facebook, on, you know, different threads, like people will often pose the question, is mathematics invented or discovered? Yes. Uh, would you like my take on that, or was it? <laughs> I I would. I have for a long time fallen into the invented camp, but I I, I don't give it a lot of credence. Like I, yeah, I, I don't have a super high certainty of that. As is often the case, um, I find that simplistic dilemmas are usually hiding something. Uh, so when when someone phrases a question in terms of is it A or B, you know, I think my knee jerk reaction is is there an option C or D out there? Um, and this is an example of that. Uh, I think it's probably a mistake to say that mathematics is 
either invented or discovered. Um, it makes sense to me as to why it's framed that way. And, and indeed, two of the major schools of thought in the philosophy of mathematics fall down along those lines. The Platonists tend to think that it's discovered. Um, you know, it's far too elegant, far too useful. Uh, and it seems like these mathematical truths were out there waiting for human beings to stumble upon them long before we ever came up with them. Uh, uh, whereas uh, the constructivists tend to say that mathematics is more like a language that we have that we develop over time to help us make sense of our experiences to make help us uh, communicate uh, and interact with the world uh, so my own take on this is uh, it's probably something a combination of both um, we can want to be very very cautious about uh, in my opinion it's a good idea to be cautious about attributing existence uh, uh, to things um, without good reason so I, I'm certainly don't identify as a mathematical Platonist but at the same time I recognize that the Platonist have a pretty powerful argument uh, in, in that the, the math works in ways that we wouldn't expect the, expect it to if it were merely an invention. Uh, uh, there's, there seem to be aspects and areas of mathematics uh, that exist out there independent of anything that we've done with them yet, um, and just it takes us a while to hunt down the consequences. But at the same time, I do think the analogy of mathematics as a language is pretty on point. Uh, it, it is a, in that sense, it is a tool that we develop in order to talk about the world, uh, especially uh, when we're talking about refined and particular things like science or engineering. Um, so, so therefore, uh, we we should probably keep in mind that you know, in my opinion, at least, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I, I can certainly get behind that. I've always the idea that. Math is something that we have kind of built to describe something that is really there, as as best as we can tell. I mean, I'm I'm not an idealist. Like I think there is a world outside my own brain. Um, and but relating to that world is something that we have to build concepts for, and we exchange those concepts imperfectly. But yeah, I think it, math when, when you. When you look at you know, that philosophy of mathematics, you know one of the things that's really interesting is that philosophers of math mathematics often will treat different mathematical objects differently in their ontology. Um, uh, you know, it, it's sometimes thought that it's you know, you know, everything is either one way or another. Um, but something like counting numbers might work very differently than something like imaginary numbers. And either a mathematician or a philosopher of mathematics might have very different attitudes towards counting numbers versus imaginary numbers. Sure, it's the idea. It makes me think of that uh, the the whole problem with that was uh, that Kurt Gödel talked about with his incompleteness theorem, is that it's it is impossible to come up with a set of mathematics that can describe itself perfectly and completely. I think that's, that's the best way. It's a bit of a rough approximation, but probably yeah. close enough for our purposes here. Yeah, uh, um, I'm, I'm, it, Gödel's uh, kind of blew people's uh, minds back when he established this proof in the mid twentieth century. Um, he really upended the apple cart for a lot of philosophers of mathematics, um, and <laughs> and showed that a lot of the things that they wanted out of mathematics simply weren't possible. Hence, the impossibility theorem. And. Uh... But, I'm sorry, uh, I called it the impossible. It's the incompleteness there, not the impossible. Yeah. That's a different thing. Sorry, my apologies. <laughs> um, the uh, but like that's the we're we're talking about some pretty heavy, uh, some pretty difficult and abstract parts of philosophy. But a lot of philosophy, like 
people don't realize that they're often involved in political philosophy. Like you mentioned mm -hmm. that you're about to – you're contemplating and considering doing a whole series on the philosophy of pol politics. So, yes, one of the things which I find to be kind of frustrating, um, not just in lay people, but in professional philosophers and myself included, is that oftentimes we have conversations about politics that are very much rooted in the immediate, you know, uh, the, the most recent news, and it's detached and removed from deeper considerations about fundamental political principles uh, or, or more general questions. Uh, and as such, uh, you know, when you're, you're not really rooted to anything that is, uh, you know, sort of going to force you to stay consistent, uh, we oftentimes might uh, get involved in contradictions and hypocrisies, mm. not because we're bad people or because we're stupid, uh, but simply because we, we get so distracted by the, the latest headlines uh, that we lose sight of broader issues. And so one of the things I try to do in, in, when I teach political philosophy is to, to get my students to get away from these more immediate questions and try to look at the big picture, uh, which hopefully will then help them orient uh, as they go out to try to have political conversations about the, the more day-to-day -day topics. Well, I mean, I think it can be strategic at times because, you know, people will try to use rhetoric that supports whatever ideology that they subscribe to, uh, sometimes maybe not even fully aware that they're doing it. But um, I, I think it can be kind of easy to contradict yourself even, you know, with an argument just because that kind of conveniently suits, you know, the political cause that you favor. Yeah. And that, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that people, we see this all the time in the example of, you know, informal logical fallacies that people use. Yeah. And informal logical fallacies, of course, are always tricky because uh, what, what distinguishes a formal logical fallacy from an informal logical fallacy is that a formal logical fallacy depends on the structure of the argument, whereas the informal fallacies depend on the content of the premises and how they relate to uh, the other, the contents of the other premises. Um, mm. So it's tricky precisely because uh, a, an informal fallacy isn't necessarily always a fallacy. There might be something that looks quite similar in a slightly different context that actually is a perfectly legitimate argument. Um, <laughs> uh, it depends on the nuances and the details of what it is that you're arguing about. A, a like great I, example I, of that is uh, the, the no true Scotsman fallacy gets thrown around <laughs> a lot. Yes, very good example. There, there are certain circumstances in which a person is being intellectually dishonest when they try to say, well, that's not a counterexample to my claim because of this disqualifying exception or something like that. Um, uh, so the, again, the standard example is the no, no Scotsman would co commit a murder. Wait, here's a story of a person who's from Scotland who committed a murder. Well, no true Scotsman would commit a murder, like the story goes. In that story, obviously that person is just trying to avoid embarrassment and trying to preserve their own uh, 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 nationalistic commitment to the idea that, that Scotsmen are superior people. But there are other <laughs> examples where there can be legitimately disqualifying aspects of something, uh, so, so something that looks like a counterexample at, fa at face value actually isn't once you dig deeper beneath the surface. Or one that I, I keep hearing uh, more recently kind of thrown around is the appeal to authority isn't that supposed to be a fallacious appeal to authority? But in, especially in like regards to like, you know, uh, coronavirus and, you know, people saying, well, you, that's a, that's an appeal to authority. They can't just dictate that, you know, that's, you know, that something is the fact. And then you just appeal to that when the people you're kind of appealing to are literally the experts on the subject. Yeah, that's an excellent example, right? Um, 
And I think most people, again, if you sit them down in the abstract, you know, you don't bring up any particular topic, you can get them to agree that there are some circumstances where we should defer trust to experts. And there's going to be other circumstances where we shouldn't defer our trust to the experts. Now, people might not agree on which cases are which, but I think everyone will agree that sometimes that is a uh, rationally sensible move and sometimes it's not. Uh, So at at that point, the debate just is, you know, about the particulars. Does it make sense to defer to epidemiologists and virologists when it comes to the pandemic? Uh, Does it make sense to refer possibly to political appointees? Um, or should we instead, you know, should we trust, uh, people in the media, reporters, journalists, and so forth? It's another example. Um, right. so, uh, where we draw the line and for what reasons is a complicated issue, but it isn't necessarily one that's going to be a matter of a logical error. Well, I mean, uh, authorities aren't always experts either. Um, sometimes that's true. That's true. they're not any more knowledgeable than lay people like Right. Myself. Indeed. Author- authority can be a political authority, not necessarily an intellectual authority. And you know that, like that, uh, here we—that's that's just a great example of like, what is the field of philosophy that talks about how the ideas that are different in when we're talking about like similar words, like how would we when we differentiate a political authority from a scientific or you know a, a scientific authority, what's the idea like of differentiating those two concepts? Yeah, I mean, that that might be in the context of philosophy of language um, uh, or a subfield of philosophy of language, like philosophy of political language versus scientific language. Um, and once, one thing which can sort of bridge that gap is broader questions about uh, what should we believe, right? Uh, what should – who should we entrust – um, when it comes to deciding uh, what it is that we're going to believe, because the vast majority of things that we believe are not things that we can independently verify. Uh, so, the, so the general field of social epistemology comes up here. Uh, and one question in social epistemology is, uh, should we have different standards for something like politics versus something like science? Uh, should, should the same standards apply across the board no matter what? Or should we specialize and say politics has stan- this set of standards, whereas science has a different set of standards? And then, of of course, there's a complication about what happens when science and politics are overlapping in the field of something like global warming, for example, and we're trying to determine what the best policy going forward is going to be uh, for, for for dealing with, uh, with uh, problems with the climate. Um, you're obviously going to have to be talking about both political values and scientific values. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a, a very tricky set of questions about, about how it is that we determine what kinds of rules should govern what we believe and what we uh, uh, disbelieve. So to bring it back to the you know to, to the idea of like lame and starting to approach these very serious and they're very real questions that affect you know me for example, um, you know how does one know that they've done enough homework to to have a comp to have confidence in their decisions? What's the relationship between confidence in your ideas and the amount of work that you've put into your ideas? That's a very good question, and it's one that, you know, like a lot of philosophical questions, don't have easy answers. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there are some schools of thought uh, in philosophy where if you follow them down the rabbit hole, you will end up uh, just 
uh, with an infinite regress of how do you know that's true? How do you know that's true? Uh, and you can end up being just a, a bottom and a bottomless pit of skepticism uh, <laughs> and uh, end up paralyzed from living a normal life because you're constantly looking for a justification or a grounding for a belief or a principle. Um, and as such, you end up uh, never being able to find that. And so uh, you end up having just terrible anxiety and having no friends and never leaving the house. Makes me Kinda think like of GD. Oh, just kind of like the like the Dunning Kruger effect, except it never actually comes back up, right? You just the right, more you yeah. know, the, <laughs> just continue <laughs> to drop off into oblivion. Uh, yes, and JJ, I believe you mentioned uh, the, the character Cheedy from the the, show, the television show The Good Place, uh, who yes is an excellent <laughs> example of, right. of of someone who is paralyzed by philosophical overthought. Um, that's uh, you know that's something I've, I've thought about a lot, especially through the pandemic when we we saw just a wide variety of people, you know, pontificating on the, what they should do because it all matters. Like everybody, we were all thrown into the situation, and everybody had to make a decision, and it was with, really with really fascinating. Yeah, it was really fascinating to see how many dif different decisions were made, how people grouped into consensuses on these different decisions. I hope that's the right plural. <laughs> Consensies? <laughs> yeah, consensuses. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and how people justified their certainty or their confidence in the things that they said. Now, was, one of the things which comes to my mind when I hear you say that, uh, is the the observation that people are often strangers to themselves. They don't know why they're making the commitments that they're making. They might believe they're doing it on the basis of something like science, but oftentimes they're fooling themselves. And really what they've done is uh, uh, lined up perhaps with a political tribe, for example. Uh, mm. and, and that's actually what's wagging the dog, as it were. Yeah. Um, and so... Again, one of the things which, you know, hopefully, ideally, obviously it doesn't work out this way in practice, but one of the things which a philosophical education, whether it be you know, a formal collegiate one or even just an informal one, one of the things which hopefully it can do for you is give you a, a, enough remove to question yourself in a healthy way without paralyzing you to the point where you can never make uh, any decisions because you're constantly second guessing, third guessing, quadruple guessing everything, every decision that you make. Uh, so it is, you know, to use the, this ongoing example, it's worthwhile to stop and ask, okay, you know, I have this set of beliefs about the pandemic and about what we should do about them. Why do I feel so strongly committed to these ideas? What is it that makes me think that this particular approach is the right approach? Um, now, the first immediate reaction that you have to that may be correct, but again, what I would invite people to do is to second guess themselves at least once and say, mm. what if it's not that? What if the reason you believe this isn't because you actually have a grasp on the science or uh, because you have you know, done research or done your homework? What if that's not the reason? What if instead it is something else, maybe something more emotional, perhaps, and less rational that's driving you to that conclusion? Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean your conclusion is wrong, but you might be coming to it for a dubious reason, and it can be very healthy to interrogate that idea in yourself. You mentioned tribes. Um, that's something I can very much kind of identify with just from my own past. Uh, I, I would say probably my introduction to philosophy was, um, through religious apologetics, although mm -hmm. I didn't actually get the introduction 
from within apologetics. It actually came when I started watching apologists, you know, argue with people or debate people. And through those debates, I started seeing, you know, a lot of times they would debate like an atheist or something, and they would bring up, you know, logical fallacies that they're committing or what, or more often they would just try to break down an argument and point out what was wrong with it. And so that kind of sparked my interest. And I started kind of looking into some of the people that uh, a lot of the po apologists that I looked up to were, were arguing with. And I kind of discovered a whole community of people who kind of formed a community around skepticism. Um, do you think it's possible to have a tribe that reinforces just that idea uh, of, of, you know, trying to be self-skeptical and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe questioning your own ideas a little bit more? I think it's certainly possible, but uh, in the way that tribes work, of course, they're often very, very slippery. And any right. attempt to create a tribe oriented around skepticism will almost uh, invariably slip into other tribal points of anchoring as well, whether that be a particular political ideology, a particular attitude towards uh, uh, social phenomenon. Uh, you know, we, we, you see this happen in the sciences all the time. You know, you, we, mm -hmm. we like to think of science as being this rationally pure endeavor, but you can actually see different uh, schools of thought, different tribes within a given scientific discipline. You know, so so the biology department at Harvard, for example, might have a certain set of commitments uh, to certain controversial issues in biology, whereas the biology department at Stanford might have a different set of commitments. And it's not necessarily that the uh, the evidence uh, differs from one department to the other. Um, it, it might simply be a matter of sort of social uh, uh, inertia, and that when you hang out with people who tend to cluster around these values, you're going to get drawn into that gravity too. True. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's part of the process. I, after your whole uh, philosophy of science series, the second uh, philosophy book I ever got was uh, Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. A true and classic. that was one of the most influential books on my thinking that I've ever read. Yes, I mean it's it's a book that I that I highly recommend to anyone, especially if they are interested in in the nature of science. But even if science isn't your thing, uh, um, any field that is governed by broad uh, uh, schools of thought, if you will, uh, can be understood through through the lenses that Thomas Kuhn provides for us. Um, again, that's not to say that I necessarily agree with Kuhn about everything. I certainly don't. Um, but uh, understanding how to do a Kuhnian analysis of a system of beliefs is an incredibly useful uh, skill to have. And I found it, it was very accessible, like it wasn't extraordinarily difficult to parse through. Uh, yeah, it was a really good experience. I'm, I'm also happy to recommend it to anybody, especially people that are interested in the question of how people come to agree on things that they think are true. Yeah, whether that be science or politics or religion or, or, or uh, pretty much anything, really. I think that Kuhn gives you, like I say, a set of tools, uh, uh, a lens through which you can observe uh, these, uh, these groupings um, that can be very insightful to how human beings come to collective decisions about what to believe and what to think. Um, you, you, we were talking about the idea of... Uh... Uh, you know, how you, you can always ask the question, why this? And then when you answer that question with some explanation, you end up asking the question, why that? Uh, how do you avoid, because 
even when I was young, although I didn't have the words for it, the idea of there being like no bottom, the which you know I I understand it like the radical skepticism is how I've seen it termed. How do you deal with radical skepticism in your life? So uh, one of the the great skeptics in the history of philosophy is the Scottish philosopher David Hume, uh, who who once uh, proclaimed that. Uh, uh, being a philosopher is great, but at some point you have to be a human being. And, and by that, he meant, uh, or at least I interpret him to mean, uh, that a lot of the, the sort of the tools and the techniques that we learn while doing philosophy might be useful, they might be entertaining, uh, uh, they might be in insightful, but you have to put them down at some point uh, and just go about life as a layperson, as a regular person. Uh, one you know, particular example he brought up is, you know, how do I know that this hamburger that I'm going to eat is actually going to nourish my hunger? Uh, there's all sorts of skeptical arguments you can make about how you don't really have a rational reason for believing uh, that uh, just because it worked that way in the past means it's going to continue to work that way in the future. Uh, but if, again, if you take that to its conclu logical conclusion, you no person ever has a reason to ever pick up food and eat food and they're going to starve to death. So Hume says, at some point, we have to stop being philosophers and just go about the the, the day to day business of being a human being. That's a I myself actually take a different approach. Um, uh, what I think actually is that uh, it's simply frequently, at least not always, but frequently a mistake to try to ground everything in any sort of fundamental foundation. Uh, I, I borrow here in particular from the work of the 20th century American philosopher Willard von Orman Quine, uh, who, who makes the metaphor of, you know, uh, if we think about grounding things um, we're often talking in the way that you imagine that people thought about the earth before we understood that the earth was round, that there's just sort of some bottom level of the universe beyond which you can't get any, any deeper and everything has to be rooted or grounded in that flat earth. But of course, time goes by. We understand now the earth actually isn't being held up by anything. It's not on the back of a turtle or anything like that. The, the earth holds itself up. Uh, and what matters isn't that you ground your uh, beliefs in, in this uh, soil which beyond which you can't get any deeper, uh, but rather that everything sort of holds together well uh, um, and that, that your overall belief structures uh, uh, support and reinforce each other. Again, it's important to go back and interrogate those belief structures and, 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 and see whether or not some of them still might be misleading you or treating you poorly. Uh, but overall, the important thing isn't finding some ultimate foundation with, with which you can justify or rationalize all your beliefs, but rather that the set of beliefs that you have tend to be useful, practical tools for navigating the kinds of problems that you encounter in your life. There almost seems like there's this oscillation between a need to you know be pragmatic about our existence and a need to ask, ask those deeper questions and try to probe the you know more and more, just get more and more fundamental in our understanding of any any given object and it's almost like just back and forth in my own life it just seems like i go back and forth between having to deal with you know all the normal day-to-day -day shit that you have to deal with and then asking like really hard questions like you know, what is it to exist and what does it mean? What's the relationship between the fact that I could only really, you know, the, the kind of the, the Kajido thing, like I only really can be certain that I am experiencing what I'm experiencing. Yeah, the, and, na the nature of, of pragmatism and certainty are certainly complex philosophical questions, but I'm sorry, I feel like I maybe cut you off there, JJ, if you want to finish that thought. 
Oh, no, I mean, it, it, it was a ride. It's just like, I have to often, like, try to decide how I'm going to spend my time between dealing with my day-to-day stuff and then really trying to think about these questions that I find really curious. Yeah, I mean, everyone only has so much, you know, intellectual bandwidth, for lack of a better term. Um, uh, you, some people have more, some people have less, of, you know, it, but there's all sorts of empirical evidence that uh, the amount that you have can depend on things like the quality of your sleep, whether or not you've had coffee recently, whether or not your your blood sugar is low and so forth. If your um, mom had lead exposure when you were neonatal. Excellent example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, um, there's all sorts of variables that can contribute to to having you know greater intellectual bandwidth and lesser intellectual bandwidth, um, and you know if you're working two jobs, you know twelve to sixteen hours a day trying to raise several kids and put, put them through school or something like that, obviously you're probably going to have less time to pa- to to do navel gazing philosophical ponderings <laughs> than someone like me who gets yeah. paid to do that for a living. Um, but again, with an eye to the idea of of you know why lay people should learn and do philosophy is is that no matter how sort of overtaxed you are, there's almost certainly some practical benefit that you can get out of trying to find at least some of your intellectual bandwidth that you can commit uh, to uh, to some of these sort of deeper philosophical endeavors. Um, Maybe that's just be, because it can be relaxing and it can be fun. It can be nice to have a, a philosophical conundrum to distract you from your day-to-day problems, or possibly because uh, there might be a set of philosophical concepts or tools that might actually help you deal with some of the problems that you are dealing with in your life. Yeah, I mean, I think even just like maybe changing your mindset can be kind of a, a start. Because um, I've heard like a number of scientists talk about just like welcoming the opportunity to be wrong. Uh, because when you're right about something, you know, you you don't really stand to gain anything. But when you discover that you're wrong about something, you actually have an opportunity to improve, you know, uh, one area of your life. Um, just that welcoming that opportunity alone could be, you know, just a little bit of an maybe just a mind change uh, to maybe introduce you to new ideas and, you know, maybe be a little bit more thoughtful in the way that you approach things. Because I don't think that, you know, intuition is entirely a bad thing. Um, we use it a lot. It can be very, uh, very useful. It's a great utility, but uh, it can also be wrong. So I think that, you know, just being willing to accept that uh, potential and, you know, reconsider things whenever uh, challenges are brought up. I think one of the biggest problems that we have as human beings, now, again, I'm not sure if this is necessarily something that's hardwired into us or whether it's something that's culturally learned. I imagine it's probably, again, a little bit of both. Right. But one of the biggest problems is that it feels so good to be right, and it (laughs) really kind of hurts when we're proven wrong, especially if it's about something that we've committed to. If we've put a lot of effort and a lot of energy and a lot of time in, it is very hard to back down, even if from a more sober, impartial point of view, we could recognize that, yeah, we we should acknowledge that we made a mistake here. Um, And so, yeah, I I think you're absolutely right uh, that one of the important lessons, which uh, ideally uh, studying philosophy will teach us, is to be more humble uh, and to acknowledge and recognize that there is no shame in being wrong. Um, there, there, and no matter how good it feels to be right, uh, we we need to be able to to step back from that 
Um, the, the, the goal of interacting with our fellow human beings shouldn't be to dunk on them or to prove how much we know or how much wiser we are than them, um, even though that really can be a rush as someone who spent way too Man. much time in fruitless <laughs> like online debates. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean like, Thomas, you like mentioned it's, it's, the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Uh, uh, just kind of on what you were saying, like as, as counterintuitive uh, as uh, it might seem, uh, I've actually gained a lot of respect for people for admitting that they were wrong about something instead of doubling down on it. Um, you know, when you double down on something that you're very clearly wrong about, you actually can lose a lot of respect that way. So even though it might feel, you know, like a ding to your pride to admit when you're wrong, I think that you actually can gain a lot more credibility, uh, you know, among other people just by admitting that or being willing and, to. And interestingly enough, it's actually more rhetorically effective too. When people understand that they're having a conversation with someone who is willing to admit when they were wrong, they're much more likely to listen to that person and take what they have to do seriously because they don't see them as an ideologue who's just True. digging in their heels. If so already, it, it, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it, so it's good in, in just as a matter of sort of pure intellectual integrity, but it's also good as in terms of rhetorical strategy for building long-term relationships that can hopefully be constructive uh, across uh, you know across tribes or across disagreements uh, in, in politics, religion, philosophy, or what have you. Almost kind of gives more credit to the things that you really do strongly um, believe. Whenever you are willing to admit, you know, that you're wrong on things. Well, that can be tricky too, though, is because again, some people have no problem admitting that they're wrong, like you know, when it comes to maybe science or or religion, but have an awful lot of problems admitting they're wrong when it comes to politics. You know, we compartmentalize a lot, and right. we draw our, set our sense of identity and our sense of uh, personal value from different areas of of, of discourse. Um, and so, uh, I, I would caution people against you know uh, uh, crossing disciplines like that because this, <laughs> this person is willing to admit they're wrong in this field doesn't necessarily right. mean that they're more intellectually credible in a different one. Well, I, like I feel like it. You need to be. It needs to be related to the topic in order for it to really mean much, right? Yeah, I mean, again, it's it, it can be it can be difficult, precise. I mean, especially if you're talking about an online conversation, uh, you know, on social media, uh, there's so much that you miss when you don't get to see another person's face or interpret their body language or listen to their tone of voice. Right. Um, uh, uh, so again, a conversation like this is somewhat more improved because we uh, at least are able to interact in real time and we can hear each other's voices. Um, but yeah, there's, there's just a whole lot of variables there. And the same person who has incredible intellectual integrity in one context might be a paragon of zero intellectual integrity in another. I'm sure that I'm that way. And at least I have been in the past. And knowing that I have been in the past and at the time when I was that way, I felt very sure of my position. It's difficult for me to look at myself now and really give myself any more confidence than my wrongness in the past. And it can be addictive, too. I mean, there's a lot of talk about Americans' addiction to anger going on, but I think part and parcel of that is uh, the, the addiction that we have to the idea that we are right, that our tribe is right, and that the other people are wrong and ignorant and backwards. Uh, and <sighs> it, it, it's just incredibly gratifying to, to feel that we 
have figured it out and they have not. Or to see someone from our tribe make just a really witty comment on Twitter, nailing that person on the other tribe. Um, and, and, and that, that the high that we get from that as, as rewarding as it can be in the short run is in the long run, both intellectually and I would say spiritually, for lack of a better term, uh, hollowing. It, it doesn't really make us better off as a society or as individuals, uh, to, to, to just keep living off that addiction. Like, <laughs> I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly left leaning and I, I feel like it's not as hard for me to be critical of people on my political you know, side of the aisle as it is for me to be willing to entertain the idea that somebody from the other side is actually right about something. Um, I feel like maybe the skepticism is easier than accepting something, uh, you know, that somebody I disagree with ideologically could be right about. And... That makes a lot of sense, but and I, I would, I feel very much the same uh, for the most part too. Um, but it's also worth noting that that can come with a certain amount of privilege. Um, you know, again, I am you know white, heterosexual, uh, upper middle class, uh, and when it comes down to it, uh, a lot of these political debates, for example, don't necessarily have a, a, an immediate effect on me. But if you know right. you are a black woman, for example, or a trans person, it's not just an intellectual debate for you. It's not just something right. that is engaging. It might literally be a matter of life and death. Uh, so you might, someone who is has one of those identities might have a lot harder time stepping back and criticizing someone in their own tribe, not because they, again, they're intellectually inferior or anything like that, but because a unified front is much more essential for succeeding politically in the ways they're necessary for their own lives to continue at the level of quality that you know they're justly entitled to. Kind Man, of goes back I, into that. I try oh, to think ahead. about that a lot when I'm thinking about people like from the root, like from like the rural South that are really like committed, or just rural areas that are really committed to you know th their very conservative causes. Like yeah, I'm sure I mean, they that, feel that, the same way. That that that's an excellent point. I mean, it it doesn't really matter a whole lot for you if you are someone in the rural South, a factory worker or a miner or something like that. Whether or not global warming is real probably isn't going to make too much of a difference in your life. But whether or not uh, the people in your life see you as one of them is going to make a huge difference. So you will probably be less inclined to believe in the reality of global warming, not on the basis of, of evidence per se, because that's kind of an abstracted question. You don't have a whole lot of control over, over policy, but you need the people around you to see you as trustworthy, to see you as a friend. Uh, so you're much more liable to, uh, uh, to acquiesce your beliefs uh, on, on a, a, a topic like whether or not man-made glo global warming is happening um, uh, to a social survival strategy rather than a, a rigidly empirically grounded strategy. Now that might sound like criticism, like I'm saying that these people are driven more by their political ideologies than they are by the facts and evidence, but it's not because they're, again, my whole point is there's nothing special about them in that regard. Everyone has to balance things like evidence against things like their their social belonging. Uh, and if you're the kind of person who, like me, um, uh, can can safely disregard social belonging in favor of just following the evidence, then that that's probably a result of an, a position of considerable uh, social 
privilege that you have rather than because you have some sort of incredible character and, and, and the courage to follow the evidence wherever it leads. Kind of like a, you know, maybe a um, pastor in a really fundamentalist church that maybe isn't following, you know, evidence to a conclusion, but uh, he's kind of in a position where if he, if he compromises that, he, he loses everything that he knows. Yeah, I mean, not just his livelihood, but his position in the community, his his personal respect. So, yeah, there's there's going to be a, and again, again, everyone does this to some degree, and in some areas, uh, uh, that you're going to condition your beliefs not simply on the basis of of, of facts and evidence, but on the basis of uh, uh, social connections and social commitments, because. Other things matter in life besides simply facts and evidence. Human relationships matter. Support from your community matters. Love and caring from other people matter. Uh, so given that all of those things are important as well, everyone has to, to walk this incredibly complicated uh, you know, balance beam or minefield pick, whatever metaphor that you want, um, uh, between navigating these d differing committing epistemic and interpersonal values in order to, to figure out how to live their life. Yeah. Do you, do you have kind of like maybe like a final thought that you might leave us with, um, just kind of maybe wrapping up, you know, why you think philosophy is important for people to, uh, try to at least dabble in a little bit? Yeah. So I think uh, hopefully we've been sort of illustrating the value of philosophy as we've been going on having these conversations, but I think right. it's, it's a good idea to actually directly answer the question. So if the question is, why should lay people learn philosophy? I will give three really quick answers to that question. Uh, hopefully all of which I've touched on in our conversation so far. First off, I think it's very fun. Uh, this is the point I made about yeah. looking at pop culture and science fiction. Uh, you know, you, you can appreciate a lot of the material that you already understand. You're already in love with better if you understand philosophy, and that material can actually be a good guide to the ways in which philosophy can be fun. So philosophy is, is fun. That's one reason why people should learn philosophy. I agree. Two, two because it's useful. Um, we All of us encounter problems in our day-to-day -day life. Now, sometimes, of course, we sweep them under the rug or we pay them lip service. Um, but if we are, I think, are intellectually honest and have a certain amount of intellectual integrity, at least some of those times, we really want to sit down and think carefully about things, whether that be ethical problems, like whether or not we're going to have an abortion or sentence a murderer to death or continue eating meat or political problems about who you should vote for, what kinds of limits we should place on things like hate speech, whether we should go to war, questions about the nature of consciousness and the mind, like artificial intelligence. Do we think that the AI can possibly be intelligent? And if so, do they get moral status? Religious problems, scientific problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are problems that we encounter, and uh, philosophy can help us tackle these problems in a, a more deliberate, more thoughtful way. So that's the second reason, third and final reason why I think lay people should learn philosophy. Uh, and that's just, I think it's inherently rewarding. Uh, it, it doesn't just have practical value. Like I said a second ago, it has existential value. Um, Socrates, rather famously on his deathbed, said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, and philosophers, of course, have gone back and picked that apart. What exactly does it mean to examine your life and so forth? What makes a life <laughs> worth living and so forth? Because that's the kind of thing that we do. Um, but the broad sentiment is one that I'd certainly agree with. Um, 
understanding is better than ignorance. Uh, the, the, the capacity to think critically is better than simply sleepwalking through life. Um, this is something that, independent of the practical rewards that it has, makes your life more fulfilling simply because uh, you are exposed to these things. Now, again, you could make similar claims about exposure to art or, or to social science or to the physical sciences and so forth. This is not to exclude the value of those things. Uh, it is simply to say that, that, that philosophy can do for us uh, an incredible wide variety of things that make our lives richer and more fulfilling. Uh, and at the end of the day, we kind of need as much of that as we can get. Yeah. Nice. Man, any, it's always uh, a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> it's a pleasure you talking any? to you guys. You have anything for us, uh, JJ, to uh, leave final thought no, there? I, I think I was, as if you can imagine, I'm really, really pleased with you know a lot of the subjects that we touched on. Yeah, um, me too. It's a lot of stuff that's very important to me, and it, I, and it, I'm happy to offer this you know brief platform to a few people that I care about, so that we can share in this experience. Um, I'm looking forward to if you're ever willing, of course. Uh, to come back on and talk about panpsychism, I do. That would be wanna, fantastic. Think, I'd love to. Before we do that, I think I do want to read Galileo's error. It's so it's an accessible book. Uh, again, I, I I have many criticisms of it, but one thing which I will say about it is, you know, Philip Goff's Galileo's error is an incredibly readable book. He's an excellent writer, and he does a very good job of taking complex topics uh, and making them something that even if you've never picked up a, a philosophy book before, you can understand. So so in that respect, at least, I will strongly recommend his book. Yeah, and I I don't want to make the mistake I did of talking about compatibilism to Ben Watkins when I. Really, I, I, I kind of just knew in my heart of hearts that I didn't really understand the position, but I didn't understand how profoundly little I had thought about the compatibilist position and had you know any data in it. And I really set myself up for one of those uh, hard knock lessons. Well, well sometimes those you. are the most memorable ones. Well, I remember. <laughs> sunk you right down into that Dunning Kruger Valley, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really, the last thing I can think of is just like for what little I've been exposed to philosophy, it's made a really profound impact on the way that I analyze things. Um, I quite often realize just how stupid and wrong I can be about things. So uh, I think it is really valuable. Um, thank you so much for coming on with us, Garrett. Uh, I, I think JJ plugged your YouTube channel, but you want to uh, kind of give a plug for the, that YouTube channel again? Or if, yes, or if there's anything else, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah so my right. YouTube channel is Sisyphus Redeemed, which is also my Twitter handle, although the spelling is slightly different because the number of le letters you can have on the Twitter handle is uh, one smaller than the proper spelling. So I can't remember off the top of my head exactly. I think I have one less E in Redeemed. Um, uh, that's where I do most of my social media interactions these days. Um, I am I, I would I would like to plug my book, but I, it isn't published yet. I'm I'm I'm, I'm in the process <laughs> of writing it. Um, so hopefully um, at some point in the future uh, I can come back on and I'll have a, a contract in hand that I can point everybody to uh, to my forthcoming book. But uh, that's you, uh, that is as yet in the works. Do you have a name picked out yet, or is that going to be between uh, you and the yeah. publisher? Uh, well, I have a name I want to go with, uh, but again, okay. as, as I don't yet have a book contract, I don't right. know what the publisher thinks. But uh, the, the name I want to go with is Neuromachean Ethics, uh, which is a play on Aristotle's book Nicomachean Ethics, um, and it sort of tells you what the subject is right there. I'm trying to take an Aristotelian virtue ethics approach to questions and problems in, in neuroscience and neurophilosophy. Cool. Well, I have, uh, I've got links in the description, so uh, 
if you just click on the link, it take you right to uh, Garrett's uh, social media and, and uh, uh, you can follow him. Thanks for coming on with us, man. That was really fun talking to you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Anytime. For anybody who would like to join us, by all means, feel free to go to our website, analyzepodcast.com, fill out the become a guest uh, form, click it, send it. We'll, we'll be in touch with you. Anyway, thanks for joining us once again. We'll try not to make it two, three weeks before the next episode. <laughs> See you guys. Bye.